0: Hi there, and welcome to Edit Your Darlings, a podcast that tries to take the sting out of editing by talking with darling authors about their experiences. I'm Ariel Anderson, and today I'm joined by Dahlia Adler. Dahlia is an editor of Mathematics by Day, a BuzzFeed blogger and LGBTQ Reads Overlord by Night, and a young adult and romance author at every spare moment in between. Her novels include the Daylight Falls duology, Just Visiting, the Radley University Trilogy, and Cool for the Summer, out this year from Wednesday Books. She's the editor of the anthologies His Hideous Heart, a Junior Library Guild Selection, That Way Lies Madness, and At the Stroke of Midnight, coming from Flatiron Books in 2022. And her short stories can be found in the anthologies The Radical Element, All Out, and it's a whole spiel. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me, Dahlia. Thank you for having me. So first, let's talk about sort of in general how you found the team of people that you trust to look at your work from critique partners to proofreaders. I know you've gotten to work with the folks at Tessera Editorial for Cool for the Summer because your name came up in episode 10 as I was talking with Whitney Hill about her experiences with Tessera. Where do you find your people and what makes a good fit for your editing needs?
1: Tissera has actually also done my recent anthology, That Way Madness Lies, and both That Way Madness Lies and Cool for the Summer are out with Macmillan. So I think Mm. Macmillan must have a good relationship with them. I don't have any part in that discovery, but I know that especially the contributors to That Way Madness Lies were thrilled with Tissera. Whoever did the copy editing for that, and I'm sorry the name is escaping me right now, (laughs) but I believe I was told it, was particularly good at noting casual ableism in people's stories Mm. and the contributors really, really appreciated it. Like a number of them. I mean, but in addition to writing notes, you know, in response on the files, a bunch of them wrote in their emails back to me, like this was an amazing copy editor. So that was really cool. And, you know, (laughs) definitely have to throw some love to to Sarah for that. Cool for the summer. was like such a blur when I was editing it that I'm sorry, (laughs) I don't remember quite as much about that experience. But it's, you know, for traditional publishing, you just kind of have to have faith in whoever they're setting up for you. I have also self-published. This was way back 2014 and 2015 are when my self-published books, the Radley University series came out. Um, and the copy editor on those was, you know what, now I can't. I've, there's <laughs> Sarah Henning and Rebecca Coffendaffer were both copy editors with me at Spencer Hill Contemporary, who published my first YAs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was a copy editor there before I got published there. I'm pretty sure I was. (laughs) It's kind of unbelievable to me now that I can't remember the finer details of these things, but the truth is like coming up on a decade from it. um, Oh yeah, no. But they were doing work there. And Sarah Henning, I believe, did the copy editing for those books because I felt like having viewed both of their works, because, you know, two of us would be employed for the same manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like, Bex and I did found more of the same kinds of errors and Sarah found things that are you know, are, are tougher things for me to spot, more like timeline mm-hmm. errors that are just not my skill. So mm-hmm. I wanted somebody who was more of a compliment to it. Mm-hmm. But then Bex is somebody else that I just also recommended a lot. Um, and then developmental editing for that, I used Catherine Locke, who doesn't really do developmental editing for full manuscripts anymore, but sometimes does query packages because they're very busy with their own work at this, um, books at this point. We're friends, and they did editing, and I desperately needed somebody, and it turned out to be a really good fit. So for developmental editing, I need somebody who you know, asks the right questions, pins the right thoughts in my head, but I prefer to be led in a, here are the questions I have. you think about how you want to answer them.
0: Rather than like, here is what I see, and here's how I think you could improve it? Yes. Ah.
1: Yes. It's, you know, a more macro approach is definitely better for me. The micro is also helpful, but I find I can usually kind of figure it out myself more with prompts.
0: Do you remember any of those questions that came up? You know what was a good question?
1: And I don't remember if it was my agents or editor who asked it. It might have actually even been both of them. Like in Cool for the Summer, Laura has this best friend who is is kind of terrible. (gasps) And it's, you know, why is she friends with her? And I knew that she was. (laughs) I know we're all friends with people who are questionable sometimes, especially in high school. That's an example of a question that I just really wanted to be able to answer in my revision. And that was a really helpful thing to keep poking at me to
0: discuss. Yeah. So then when you were self-publishing, who accepted those changes? Were you reviewing them and then telling your copy editor, you know, this and that's a great suggestion? Or were you in control of it yourself?
1: Just me because, you know, it doesn't go back for a second round unless you want it to go back for a second round. Um, Right. Coming from a copy editing background myself, I had been copy editing for years. So it's my choices and I have to stand by my choices. And the same thing stands true, whether you're self-publishing or traditionally publishing is you have to stand by those choices because you're the one who has to answer them when people call them out or have questions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not asking permission unless I absolutely a 1,000% have to ask permission.
0: Ooh, that's a lot of power.
1: (laughs) It is. And not everybody feels ownership of that power. So people have really different relationships with using the step command. And sometimes you have to recognize when you are holding on to something that you shouldn't or somebody else knows better than you. You know, as a general rule, like I wouldn't exercise that power if somebody is like, by the way, this is offensive in that culture. Don't do it. Or Mm -hmm. my impression, you know, the impression you're giving from this is... Negative in a way. I don't think you mean to be, um, and that's something that you definitely want to address. Calling out ableism in your work—that's not there intentionally, for example—is something that I could miss and that I want to address. You know, there are definitely those notes that you want to hear and and take, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes they're ones that you don't, and you have to stand by what you want to own and get across how you want to get it across. Traditional publishing—you know—you have to tell somebody you're doing that, and copy editing for self-publishing unless you're sending it back. You don't. Go through it yourself. And the step is implicit. And you just move forward with your choices.
0: And you don't feel like it sort of rubs it in the copy editor's face. I think a (laughs) lot of self-publishing authors are worried about that. Like they are so worried about offending their own copy editors by not accepting those changes.
1: That's so interesting. I've never heard that before. I mean, I trust myself on matters of grammar. And that may be something that separates me from other self-published authors if they have not also been copy editors. But those choices, I don't know, they're your story choices. Um, um, (laughs) You don't owe it to anybody to take their edits. You pay them to make them, to point them out, to draw your eye to how you could do something differently, how maybe you should do something differently. But you don't owe them to take your notes. Your publisher, which is... You know, is putting money into you is a different story. You owe them to meet them at some point in the middle, um, because they're also putting money into this. They also have their name on it. But your copy editor, you know, can take your check and go.
0: (laughs) There's the door. It's right over there. And if if
1: you make a choice that they don't like, I mean, unless they sign some NDA for you or something. They're pretty free if somebody calls something out in your book to be like, yeah, I advise against that and she did it anyway. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: do that to me <laughs> if I override you and people call me out on it and you're like, I don't want to be associated with that by all means. But my books tend not to get that heavily copy edited. So that's also a big difference. That's okay. a flex. <laughs> you're not seeing whether or not I accepted that where you moved the apostrophe. You know, you're not finding entire pages where you had to be like, this is a wild inconsistency.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And and I'm ignoring that. I'm, you know, I'm not that author.
0: (laughs) So you write both young adult, which I love, and romance, which I Mm -hmm. also love. Are there big differences in the way that you approach the editing for those different genres?
1: It's more that one is self-published and the other one is traditionally published. Young adult, Mm -hmm. I've only done traditionally, and romance, I have only done... Um, I mean, romance that's not young adult, I have only done self-published. For my first romance, which was Last Will and Testament, yeah, I didn't use a developmental editor at all because I didn't feel I was having developmental issues with coming up with the book. I did use a copy editor, but I I felt I could determine I didn't need a developmental editor for that one. And the next one, right, a first refusal, I literally couldn't finish without... Hmm. Hiring an editor and being like, please read it thus far and just tell me your thoughts so I can figure out how to move forward. And that's what happens. Catherine Locke read a portion of the manuscript, whatever I had done. And, and I'm sure I have that edit letter here somewhere from 2015 that, you know, and asked the questions I needed to ask and discussed where the manuscript could go. And that was how I was able to finish it. And in traditional publishing, I have never. Provided half a manuscript before. I've actually never sold a novel on proposal. The only novels I Mm have sold without having written them first are books that were booked to on a contract. Mm -hmm. Um, But even then, nobody's seeing it in the middle. I'm turning in the full project after I finished it. That's the process I'm in now. I'm revising a book too that literally not one person has seen besides me, which is super weird. And if I were self publishing it, I might have sent it to somebody along the way. But because this is going to ultimately have My editor at Wednesday. Um, Looking at it, I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm not having somebody else work on it in the middle unless I'm Mm -hmm. struggling to finish it. Um, I did have a good conversation with somebody who did really help me finish it. Anna Marie Mclemore is a seriously brilliant author, also a great friend who. Uh, was able to ask me the questions I needed to help move forward on this one in case you see a key theme. I really need to be asked certain questions to be able to figure out how to finish books. Um, and I honestly like feel like I would not have finished this book without them. So I am very, very grateful for that.
0: Yeah. So that's sort of like the critique partner role.
1: Yeah. That's a newer relationship for me in that regard. I did read The Mirror Season early and Anna Marie read. Cool for the summer early, and we each gave each other a couple of notes, but they were like, pretty close to done by that point. My critique partners, who I've had for a decade now, oh, um, are yeah. Marika Nykamp and Maggie Hall, who I met. I Think I think it was twenty eleven. It was like this whole. Not that everybody was in this contest called the Writer's Voice, but it was sort of how I made my inroads into making friends in NY. Everyone was sort of tangentially involved in that. So a lot of my friends date back to this one writing contest that they don't have anymore, but was a really big Twitter thing. It wasn't like Pitch Wars, but it was that sort Mm -hmm. of community. So Maggie and Marika are the ones who read pretty much all my books early, including Cool for the Summer. And then as I go, I have different people who kind of read my books early sometimes to give me notes, often not, you know, kind of depends if I think it's their sort of book or not.
0: Let's talk about how editing an anthology even works. This is something I know so little about. (laughs) Anthologies are
1: incredibly complicated. So the ones that I have done so far are both reimaginings, which means the first step after you do your proposal, and if you want to find an example of a proposal, you can look at my blog, dailydalia.wordpress.com. I have an article, a blog post called So You Want to Edit a YA Anthology that has my actual proposal for His Hideous Heart, my first anthology on it. So that's where you can go to see what that looks like. Um, so the first thing you do is you write up this proposal and it has a lineup. Find the lineup, I guess, is really your first thing after the idea is the lineup. And then because these are retelling anthologies, one thing you have to do is you know talk to your authors about which stories do you want to do, give me your top three choices then see you know where that butts heads against other people's top 3 choices and then you know eventually you work it out you got to make sure that kind of the most important works are chosen or at least do your best to make sure you know you can't do a shakespeare reimagining anthology that doesn't have romeo and juliet and hamlet and macbeth you could try <laughs> you could try people are honestly already disappointed about what stories this doesn't have and i feel the same way there are <laughs> really wanted in it that aren't there but like there's just no room especially and 15 people made their choices But so that's the first part. Um, And then once then everybody has a deadline and they submit stories and I kind of do it on a rolling basis where they do have a deadline, but I'm kind of like, just get it to me when you have it. If it's early, I'll edit it early. If you need more time, just let me know. So I have these stories that are continuously coming in and I do a round of editing on them. And then I send them along to Sarah Barley, who's the publishing editor at Flatiron, and then she's the next one to go through them. And then once we've both edited, then the story goes back to the author, and then the author makes their revisions and sends them back to me. If there's anything left to go through, you know, I'll do one more round. Um, But that's – it's rare. There's usually, like, a couple of stories in each collection that gets more than one round.
0: And you know that those stories are going to be viable because you chose the authors that you knew had those stories in them, Right. Yeah, it's tricky because you
1: do want to have new voices in there, but you also Mm -hmm. want to have authors that you know can absolutely respect deadlines and deliver short fiction. Sometimes it's a guessing game who's going to be able to do this. And sometimes you use people who are really reliable. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of why the same people end up in collections over and over again. I mentioned Anne-Marie McLemore. They're in like 10 YA anthologies. But the thing is, they always make deadline. They always write a fantastically beautiful story. They're really easy to work with. So you're going to want somebody like that in your collections all the time. You can take a chance on a few people, but I always think of it that way. You know, it was so wonderful the first time I was asked to be in an anthology and I had never been in one, but it was really, really nerve wracking. So and I was really <laughs> happy I did it. and Clearly it's been kind of a life changer. So I want to give people that same opportunity that I had to do that work, to push through it, to see if they love it. Um, and, and it's for the most part really paid off, but it is definitely a gamble.
0: hmm So then it goes through the different rounds of developmental and revisions. And then does the whole anthology get copy edited in one fell swoop? And what happens if some authors have super preferences that don't match what other authors are doing?
1: What do you mean? Super preferences in terms of what?
0: Like spelling or ways that they italicize things or like little stylistic choices.
1: I mean, I don't want to speak for every publisher. That doesn't necessarily have to be uniform across the board from story to story as much as it does within your story. Mm -hmm. Um, If somebody felt strongly about it, I, I would fight for them is generally how I feel about it. You know, if one author's like, I want foreign language italicized in my story and another one said they didn't, you know, what you want. I try to fight for my authors as much as possible. And In general, I find Flatiron to be amazing about that. And it's, you know, fight
0: is really... (laughs) It's more like a pillow and less like a sword. I
1: mean, but houses also have their own style guides. So you're going in knowing Macmillan is the house that's publishing this and Flatiron is the imprint that's publishing this. And this is the way that they do everything. And if you don't, you know, we all know our work is probably going to be changed to suit the house style. Mm -hmm. So unless there's something that you feel really strongly about, I mean, like, I've never had anybody fight me when I'm like, don't italicize my foreign languages. Yeah. You know, except where I do.
0: Like maybe Latin. If it's not a foreign language to the narrator.
1: Yeah. is a different story from where it is a foreign language to the narrator. For sure. Yeah. So it's complicated. So then it goes in and it can get, you know, line edited, copy edited. And what happens is they send me back the entire document. And there's no great way to pull it out story by story and send it to the author. So what often happens is you send the whole document and you tell everybody, just look at you know your name in the table of contents, your name on the copyright mm. page, your story, and send it back to me. So you get 15 documents,
0: <laughs> the full <laughs>
1: manuscript with only one story edited. And then my, oh my job God. is to take the edits off each and every one of those documents and transfer them onto a main
0: document. So you definitely have 28 hours in every single day. That part is a nightmare. I'm not going (laughs) to (laughs) lie. There's got to be like a macro to compile all of those.
1: Yeah. I mean, there might be technologically a better way to do it. But honestly, every time I thought I found it, I've been wrong. And then I'm just like, never mind. Please ignore what I sent you. Here's the whole document. And then you do it again because, you know, everything's copy edited and you send it in and then they do the layout and they send you proofs. And that works exactly the same way. You send them back to people and they send you their corrections. And the same thing, I'm taking 15 different sets of proofs.
0: These parts are really hard.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. My goodness. Yeah. And then you also edit mathematics. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> what so they don't call like? us acquisitions editors, like as a
1: title, but that's really what it is. Ah. That's more finding mathematicians to write books for us. Um, our manuscripts come in, and we take care of having them peer reviewed. That's more the kind of thing I do. You know, I might be mm-hmm. the appearance at a math conference who you talk to about how to publish, or you send me your manuscript, and I try to place it in a series and place it with reviewers and help you through your revisions. I don't actually have to know math. It's a really, it's a misleading job title for sure. I'm not in any way a developmental editor. I might, you know, give you some ideas for how to organize your book if you need them. The closer it is to a trade book, the more I can help you with on that front. But it's, you know, it's largely just about acquiring the book and then getting it through the production process. But the developmental Mm -hmm. editing, the peer reviewing, that's math experts.
0: So in any given day, you might swing from working on your own stuff to editing other people's stuff in anthologies to then acquiring mathematics books. Which one do you love the most? Uh, who's listening to this? Is
1: my boss listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> You're also forgetting the blogging. Blogging takes up ah. like the most part of each – not the most. Day job obviously takes up the most. I don't usually get to write during the week. Or edit during the week. I pretty much do those things on Sundays, maybe during my lunch break, unless I'm on deadline deeply mm-hmm. enough that I'm working at nights. But because I have kids, I can't really do evenings either. Like there's just <laughs> there isn't the time. So my day job is most of the day, and then I squeeze in blogging around that before work, lunch breaks, right after work. <laughs> it's really tricky. I blog, you know, both BuzzFeed and I run this website, LGBT Curates, for five years now. Mm-hmm. And those things are a lot of work. So, you know, everything I think sort of pings a different part of me. It's hard to say what I love the most because I love them in different ways. And I think that they do different things for me. But, you know, books are, are so much work and you can't do it unless you love it. You can write because you love writing and reading and whatever, but you can't publish because of that. Publishing mm-hmm. is a totally different thing. When I was on maternity leave, which was this past fall, I had to really take advantage of the time to write this book too and do all this copy edits and everything. I was just doing a ton of publishing stuff. And I was like, oh my God, with my day job out of the way, author stuff has become my full-time job. And it is really taking up full-time job kind of hours. Mm -hmm. How am I going to go back to my day job and do all of this in one day? (laughs) Yeah, life is really hard. It's, It's a lot of fulfilling and wonderful things, but it's really hard, I'm not gonna lie.
0: Yeah. How much editing work goes into the blog? A lot. A lot.
1: (laughs) I don't think it's less than 10 hours a week.
0: So you're writing posts or are you editing other people's posts?
1: I'm not really editing posts, but the truth is it's mostly formatting and just putting in information. If I'm doing a new releases post, I'm looking for what is there coming out that month?
0: Mm -hmm. And,
1: you know, putting all those books into a post and looking up the by links, tracking down the covers and saving the covers and inputting them. Stuff like that takes a really long time. When I'm making posts, they're usually not so heavy on the content, you know, like fave five queer Muslim YA is like one I have coming up or queer Appalachian fiction. And those are things that I put together and they do require some research, but The whole post is five titles that are linked and highlighted with a little graphic on the bottom. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound like that much work, different posts are different amounts of work. It's like content creation more than writing when I'm doing Mm -hmm. it for LGBTQ Reads. It Mm -hmm. is writing involved when I do it for BuzzFeed because I have to kind of write up blurbs for each book.
0: And then is there also somebody coming in behind you and copy editing your work for that? At BuzzFeed,
1: yes. Farrah Penn is the editor for YA books at BuzzFeed, LGBTQ reads, nope.
0: <laughs> so your typos are all your own. They
1: are. I I edit things throughout the day, honestly. Like I'll spot them and I'll just go in and make the change and there's no mm. one to tell it to. WordPress has been really tricky for me, and then I haven't even been able to bring on any assistance. So the only person who's there to help me is Rachel Strolley, who's amazing and does a lot of the graphics and stuff, but like also has her own absurdly packed schedules. So now I'm back to doing a lot of the content by myself and, uh, it's a lot, (laughs) it's a lot.
0: Well, let's go over the questions that I ask every author I talk to.
1: Okay.
0: First, what do you hate about the editing process? What's the worst?
1: You know, it's not the worst when you can't figure out how to do something because ultimately you're going to figure it out and you have to have faith in that process. That stretch of time where you're like, I know what needs to happen here. And it's not even just that you can't figure it out, that you just have no desire to do the work that goes into it. Like you feel dead inside at the thought of trying to do that part. (laughs) That's the worst. (laughs) I have dead inside moments about editing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then what's the most common bit of feedback you receive on your writing? From editors or from readers? From editors.
1: I don't know that there's such a commonality, but the truth is that I have done very different things over time. So Cool for the Summer is the first novel that I've published in five years. Mm -hmm. And Out on Good Behavior and Write of First Refusal were the two before that and didn't really have, didn't have editing, didn't have developmental editing on full manuscripts. So yeah, we're talking going back to a book published in November, 2015 was my last published (laughs) novel that had developmental editing the whole way through so I can't really think of a consistency if I'm being honest. Um yeah. sometimes I don't I don't give enough information in the beginning. Mm. I guess is is what I would go with. Maybe sort of that
0: telepathy problem. Yeah. I guess. I don't
1: know. I don't know how consistent that is. But I've definitely had to put on new first chapters more than once that I don't necessarily start in the right place.
0: Often it's like people want you to chop that first chapter off. So you're saying that you're adding to the beginning.
1: Yes, but not a prologue. It's just whatever I wrote as chapter one needs to become chapter two.
0: I was solicited
1: to submit a proposal for something. They just kept asking for revisions on it until finally I said no. They did ask me to put a front chapter on that and just visiting, I remember, I had to add onto the front chapter of that. So yeah, not the first time I have received that. So at least twice I have added to the very, very front of the book.
0: Do you have any last words of advice?
1: Always, always. I mean, this is not literally for everyone. I feel like I need to preface with that, but always write forward and don't try to do major edits until you finish the book. Mm. You can't edit a blank page. And if you keep editing as you go, you are going to have so many blank pages. (laughs) So what I do is I keep a document as I go with things I want to make sure to revise later. You know, where you can even leave notes in document, like highlight or add comments or whatever. And then I write the rest of the story as if I had made that revision. So, like, I decided on this big change in one of the main characters' living situations kind of halfway through the book I'm writing now. So, from when I decided that onward, I write it as if she's already in that new situation. And now I'm going back and making all the changes to make the first half catch up to the second half.
0: My brain can't even, I just got stuck. I'm just I'm I'm thinking about you're writing it and you're writing it and then you go back to the beginning and read it and it makes absolutely no sense until you get to that big change.
1: But in your head the story's already changed. So it doesn't make sense on paper and it makes it easier to scrap because you're like I already know this doesn't belong with where the characters end up or where the story's going to go. So I find it easier to make changes. First of all, I don't get distracted by editing on the way. Yeah. And then second of all, When you do it after the book is already done, you're doing it with the confidence that this change worked. Mm. And I find that that's really, really helpful for me. Whereas if you go halfway through, you go to the back, like, what if you're wrong and you want to, you keep going and you're like, oh, there's a reason I had it that way the first time. So this way, you know that the way you had had it planned out
0: works. I'll have to try that sometime. It takes a certain amount of self-control to not go back and revise. Yes. (laughs) It is definitely
1: not how I was in the beginning and it was definitely a learned tactic, but I found I was doing this and I was seeing everyone around me do it too. When we were all like newbie authors, like it almost becomes an excuse not to finish Mm. and you just need to take that excuse away from yourself. You can have the changes somewhere else, but you can't have it stop you from
0: finishing. Yeah. So the last portion of my program is a hot and wholesome gossip corner. Are there any other writers or creators doing something you're excited about? Any shout outs you want to give or people you want to lift up?
1: Oh my God. Yes. Like 8 billion. Can I have 20 minutes for this? Yes. Um, (laughs) We're doing a last book I read that I loved. It's Don't Hate the Player by Alexis Ned. And it's a gamer romance between like two gamers who met over an arcade game as like tweens or maybe even younger than tweens. And then they end up competing against each other in this huge thing. And she's trying to keep her world separate. And it's just really great. The romance is so sweet. The voice is so good. I describe the vibe as Candace Montgomery writing Eric Smith. (laughs) They're just like two of my favorite people in YA also. I will definitely shout them out. Candace Montgomery is the author of Home and Away and By Any Means Necessary, which are both great YAs. And she has an anthology coming out in 2022 with two other editors called Signs Point to Yes, or maybe All Signs Point to Yes, with each story is based on a different astrological sign and i know nothing about astrology so i'm really looking (laughs) forward to learning about it there then eric smith is an author agent and general great human who has you can go your own way coming out in november which is a pinball romance Mm
0: -hmm. yeah we had eric (laughs) on i think he was episode six or seven one of my absolute favorites for sure
1: i mean super great person
0: Um, don't read the comments was so much fun yeah
1: um they also both have main characters of color which, you know, is not a perspective you always see in things like gaming. So, (laughs) and then I mentioned Anna-Marie McLemore and Catherine Locke, who are just both fabulous. Anna-Marie just released The Mirror Season and has another book coming in 2022 called Lake Lore and also contributed to That Way Madness Lies and will also be contributing to my next anthology because even though I try not to use contributors twice, the anthology Mm -hmm. was actually their idea at the stroke of midnight. And that's an anthology of fairy tale reimaginings. Mm. And Katharine Mock does everything like romance with um, second position, which is a ballet romance. And then YA historical fantasy girl with the red balloon and spy with the red balloon. Mm. And their next book is what are your words, which is a picture book about pronouns. And then they have more YA come. Oh, and then, middle grade anthology that that they're co-editing with Nicole Mellaby, which is really exciting to me because it was my idea and I paired them together because I don't know middle grade at all. And it's an all queer middle grade anthology, hmm. which I'm really, really looking forward to. In terms of something I'm really excited about a creator doing in terms of premise, The Insiders by Mark Oshiro has to be the coolest sounding middle grade novel that I have ever heard. I literally cried on hearing the premise, which is basically like a little Narnia for closeted kids at schools. Mm. Like they hide in the closets and actually meet each other despite them all living in different places. They go to like the special place all together That's accepting. And- that sounds so wholesome. Yeah. Uh, I also really loved Love and Other Natural Disasters is a really fun mm-hmm. one that I read recently and I loved. In adult gay contemporary fiction, I just read The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley and that was really fun. <laughs> Something I'm really looking forward to, Rise to the Sun by Leah Johnson, which comes out July 6th. So that's the next book by the author of You Should See Me in a Crown, which was one of my absolute mm. favorites of 2020. I can really talk about people forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, shout out back to my critique partners, Marika Nycomp, who's most recent. You know, I can't even keep up with what their most recent is because every time there's like another goosebumps novel or graphic novel, and whatever I think is the most recent isn't even, but even if we break, and it was their really intense gaming-centric thriller that came out in September. And Maggie Hall is the author of the Conspiracy of Us trilogy, which is this really fun, like, global adventure, likely speculative fantasy, very cool adventure trilogy. Ooh. Yeah.
0: Okay. Oh my gosh, that's such, <laughs> I can that's stop such that. an incredible list.
1: <laughs> I feel like I barely tapped anything, but I blog for BuzzFeed, I blog for LGBTQ Reads, and I tweet as Miss Dalai Lama, and you can find plenty of my book recommendations and authors I love mentioned in those places.
0: Yeah. And you can also head over to her website, DahliaAdler.com, and be sure to check out her latest anthology, That Way Madness Lies, releasing... Oh, it was already released! Mm -hmm. March 16th. When we recorded this episode, Cool for the Summer was already in pre-orders. But since then, it's been released. And I'm so glad that I pre-ordered because it came with this super cute sticker sheet... And a little book plate that said XOXO Dahlia. So be sure to pick up a copy from your favorite indie store. Thank you again for talking with me, Dahlia. I know that you have like a million things going on, so I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was great.
0: If you loved this episode of Edit Your Darlings, why not share it with a friend? Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast fix. For show notes, go to EditYourDarlings.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at edit podcast, or I'm at arielcopyedits. Until next week, cheers! <music>